what a spectacular day. It got over 80, anybody here? Over? If not, it's close to it. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. Praise the Lord. I think this is our warmest day thus far this season. I think so. Regardless, I enjoyed it. And I am so glad that you're here tonight. We had a great uh, this afternoon class. We had uh, over 30 this afternoon in our class, which was a good day, partly because my wife made snickerdoodles, and I'm sure that's why they were there for that. Yeah, you've got to be here for the afternoon class for that. But we had a, <laughs> a delightful time. I didn't mention it before, but it's so good to have Steve back. Praise the Lord. I am grateful that, uh, that God brought you back safely, and, and um, you've learned a few things, and uh, now you know how to use that white stick as a weapon. Is that what you said? No, you didn't. <laughs> well, we're grateful, and we've prayed so diligently for you, Steve, and I don't want you to lose any more eyesight, but uh, these, these tools that you're picking up are going to make life so much more uh, beneficial, I would imagine, for you during this time. So. Praise the Lord for that. Good to see you. We're in Isaiah chapter 36 this evening. And I'm excited about this chapter and the next three. Isaiah chapters 36 through 39 are really the fulfillment of what we've been reading in all the previous chapters. Uh, God gave this message of judgment saying this is what's going to happen and in these chapters, it's not prophecy, it's actually the history of what happened. And um, so we're just, tonight we're going to get through just one chapter of it, and it's very narrative, and so it's just a matter of explaining what the verses mean as we go. And so let's have a prayer, and then we'll jump into it. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. Lord, this has been quite a journey in this rich, rich book of Isaiah, and I so wish that I had a better grasp on it. And understood it better. And I'm so looking forward to being taught the book in heaven. But until then, Lord, I pray that your spirit might lead us and guide us and be our teacher. Would you illuminate your word to us tonight? And I pray that you'll receive all the honor and glory, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we've been warning that Assyria was coming for a long, long time. Uh, if you don't get right, Assyria is going to come and judge you. And then, after a few chapters of that kind of warning of judgment, we took uh, God, God parted the curtains and gave them a little sneak peek of what it was like in the end times. This is what life is going to be like for you in the end times. It was like, it was like I know I've been really, really harsh on you. I'm going to give you a chance to catch your breath, which you did. Maybe a chapter or so. This is what it's going to be like in the end times. And then he says, okay, let's go back to reality, where, where things are right now. And he took them back to the judgment, another few chapters of that, before giving them another sneak peek into the uh, millennium, the time of the, the, the reign of Christ. Once we get to chapter 40, which will be in just a couple weeks, once we get to chapter 40, from then through the end of the book, it's primarily walking in the millennium. It's walking in those end times, into the reign of Christ, and it's spectacular. It's beautiful. We've been waiting a long time for this. But we have to get through some history first, so let's look at it. If you're taking notes, Roman number 1, the prophecy of God's judgment began to come true. And do me a favor, class, if you don't catch a blank, shoot out right then. Just say, hey, I didn't get that, and I'll try my best to repeat it. For some reason, I was either going too quickly or did not enunciate quickly, or we were a little sleepy because of the cookies, I'm not sure, but I had to repeat numbers of them this afternoon, so... Don't be afraid to say, I didn't get that. Letter A, 
Assyria captured all the cities of Judah but Jerusalem. Everything but Jerusalem in Isaiah 36, 1. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defensed cities of Judah and took them. How many? All of them. Sennacherib came and took all the cities of Judah and he took them with the exception of Jerusalem. Until now, Isaiah has been getting prophecy of an upcoming invasion by Assyria's judgment by God. This chapter reveals the actual invasion by the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, who directed his general, Rabshakeh, to try to intimidate Jerusalem to surrender. And these events, it's interesting because if you follow along in the book of Isaiah, you could just about read the same story in 2 Kings 18, 17 through 37. They're almost identical. Just a couple word changes, but otherwise almost identical. Now, I found it interesting, and I'll repeat myself here in just a moment or so, but Sennacherib sent his general, Rabshakeh. We'll come to find out he's got three generals, and he names them a little bit later on. Rabshakeh is the one that he chose, and we're not told why. But, but I think there is a good reason, because we're going to find out that this particular one speaks Hebrew very fluently. And so he's speaking Hebrew to these Hebrews, and they listen. And from the wall, the three officers say, hey, listen, would you mind switching over to Syrian? Would you speak in your Syrian language? We understand Syrian, but they don't. And we just assume they not hear what you're saying. We're going to get that in just a moment here. Letter B. The enemy stood by Jerusalem's secret water supply. Secret water supply, verse 2. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Now it doesn't say, we don't know the answer to this, but Hezekiah had to his... Um, to his credit, a conduit going from the, through the wall of Jerusalem out to this pool um, outside the wall that came into the city that provided them fresh water. So in the event of an invasion and they cut off all the water supplies, underneath the ground is this conduit coming through the wall into the city. Well, now it says that he's standing by this conduit, very possibly not recognizing that he's there. Because if he did recognize, he probably would have destroyed it. But nothing is said about him destroying this water supply. So at least in the interim, Jerusalem had fresh water. Number one, Judah captured. Sennacherib was on a mission to take control of all the land of Israel. He had dominated the northern tribes for some time and was now in command of all of Judah with the exception of Jerusalem. Very quick recap. Remember how the northern ten tribes up here um, were the first ones to go. They were the most wicked by far. There were no good kings in Israel after the division. They were all wicked. Ju Judah had many good kings interspersed with some bad ones. But God allowed the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, to be taken over by Assyria first and gave Judah a much longer chance to repent. Number two, Rabshakeh was Sennacherib's spokesman. Assyria's force at Jerusalem was led by this general that speaks Hebrew, Rabshakeh. We find him at the conduit of the upper pool, likely surrounding this fresh water supply for Jerusalem, 
attempting to prevent them from having fresh water. Number three, the secret conduit. One thing of which they were apparently unaware was a secret tunnel that Hezekiah had dug through the wall of the city to the pool, giving them access to water in the event of an enemy attack against them. You that have been here for any length of time know that uh, in the wintertime, Lake Loveland goes way down. And when I first recognized that, I was so disappointed because I didn't know that. I was a visitor. I would come once a year and I'd see, usually in the summertime, I'd see that beautiful lake. My folks lived just to the north of it at the time, and it was just a spectacular view. One time I came in the winter, and it was down to almost nothing. I said, oh, that was so ugly. Why would they do that? Well, I come to find out the politics behind it. I was even more discouraged about it. But imagine, if you will, Lake Loveland having an underground conduit, a big pipe, going to, to supply uh, another community that nobody knew about. Well, there's an element of truth to that. <laughs> um, letter C, Hezekiah was represented by his officers. Verse 3, then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. If you know your history here, you might recognize the name Shebna. Shebna had a great position, but because of pride, God stripped him of that position and was going to be banished from the kingdom. But before that happened, he was simply demoted, and that's where we are right now. Number one, Assyria's brash presence. Their brash presence. Assyria brashly marched right up to the wall of Jerusalem, demanding to have an audience with King Hezekiah. Instead of acquiescing to their tactics, Hezekiah sent his officer spokesman to hear what they had to say. Bring Hezekiah out. We want to see him. Well, Hezekiah did not come out. Like it was um, reminding me this afternoon in the class, one of the students said, well, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, did not come. Sennacherib sent his general to be the spokesman. And so Hezekiah sent his spokesman. So they could talk back and forth. Um, number two, Hezekiah's officers, Eliakim had recently been promoted to a very influential position replacing Shebna, who had been disgracefully removed because of pride. Shebna now was doing the duties of a secretary. A man named Joah was the recorder. He was the one tasked with keeping careful records of historical events. Number two, insults and threats of the enemy. Letter A, <coughs> Rabshakeh insulted Hezekiah. Verse 4, Rabshakeh is the general, the Assyrian general. Verse 4, and Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Take a quick look at that verse and see if you can see any potential to where I would have guessed that there is insult being delivered there. How? You see it? You see in that verse where there might be considered some insult in verse 4? Aha. <laughs> What did Rabshakeh call the king of Judah by his first name? What did he call his own king? The great king of Assyria. <laughs> you think that was on purpose? <laughs> sure. Verse 4, 
And Rabshakeh said unto him, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the, great, the king of Assyria. What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Number one, Assyria's insolence. With much insolence, Rabshakeh referred to the Jewish king by only his first name. The references to Assyria's king were almost always given with great pomp, such as the great king, the king of Assyria. Isaiah 36, 13. <clears throat> Number two, Hezekiah's fortifications. Instead of seeking out Sennacherib to assure him of Judah's support, Sennacherib sent a note to Hezekiah saying, we want you to continue paying your dues, continue paying your support to us. Instead of that, learning the political condition and the pressure there, Hezekiah fortified his city against an attack. Rabshakeh questioned why Hezekiah had dared to resist. And what is he trusting now? You're not trusting in Assyria. You're not trusting in Sennacherib. What are you trusting in? We are so much more powerful than you. 2 Chronicles 32.2 And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, here's what he did. He took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. So there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Also he strengthened himself and built up all the wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers and another wall without and repaired Milo in the city of David and made darts and shields in abundance. Things are getting stressful between Judah and Assyria. So what's Hezekiah do? Hezekiah, figuring they're going to come soon, went out and stopped all the water fountains, plugged all the wells up. Then he took and fortified his wall and built it even higher <laughs> in preparation for what he assumed would be a coming threat. <clears throat> um, letter B, Rabshakeh questioned the source of their trust. Verse 5, I say, sayest thou, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Well, notice he says, number one, these are Hezekiah's vain words. Rabshakeh told Hezekiah's representatives that the words they were delivering from Hezekiah were vain, empty words or given without any conviction. They were words he suggested with no means of supporting them. You gotta understand, here's Rabshakeh, and Rabshakeh's army over here. And they're at the wall of Jerusalem. And Rabshakeh is hollering up to these three officers. He's carrying on this conversation with these officers, speaking in Hebrew so they can understand, and they're speaking back and forth. But he's speaking loudly enough for all those on the wall to hear. There's a certain element of trying to intimidate those by what he's saying. Um, letter, or number two is Egypt's disappointment. You might remember, we spoke of this before, when, Assyria, when uh, Judah learned of Assyria's uh, coming invasion, Judah sent an entourage to Egypt with gifts to try to pay them off to come and fight for them. Um, Assyria found that out. 
Sennacherib believed that Judah had secured the military support of Egypt, but he was wrong. Why? Because Egypt never showed. They took the gifts. They gave nod, uh, head nods they were going to help, but they never showed. In 2 Chronicles 32, 7 and 8, Be strong and courageous, Hezekiah says. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him, for there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. I should have asked you earlier, just to, just to get you thinking, but Hezekiah, king of Judah, good king or bad king? Good king, a very good king, very good king. Letter C, Assyria mocked Judah's confidence in Egypt. Assyria mocked their confidence. Verse number six, Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, for on if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all that trust in him. Sennacherib had found out Judah's intent of getting Egypt's help. They thought they were still coming. As a broken reed found along the Nile River, easily broken and collapsed, so was Egypt in Assyria's opinion. Leaning on them for support would be as futile as trying to lean upon a reed for support. Of course, it's going to break. He says, as it breaks, it's going to send splinters into your hand. That's how much of a help Egypt's going to be to you. Letter D. Rabshakeh misread Hezekiah's purging of the land. This is interesting. Hezekiah knows, a, or um, Sennacherib knows a lot about what's going on in Judah, in Jerusalem. But we're going to find out that he doesn't understand it all. Verse number seven. But if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. This is Rabshakeh talking. Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away, and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar. Think about it for just a moment. Rabshakeh thought or sought to ridicule Judah in their reliance upon their God as well, because he completely misunderstood Hezekiah's work in removing the high places and the altars. These were altars to strange gods. And Hezekiah removed all these, all these uh, uh, altars that, that his own people had been worshiping that were false gods. He removed them. He removed the altars. He removed the high places, the groves. He removed all that. Sennacherib misunderstood. Sennacherib thought that these were all things pleasing his God, and so now he's taken them away. Sennacherib thinks he's displeasing God, when in reality, we understand what he's doing. He's pleasing God by doing this. In 2 Kings 18, 3 and 4 and 5, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. This is talking about Hezekiah. According to all that David his father did, he removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Neshut, uh, Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Listen to what it says here about Hezekiah. So that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, 
nor any that were before him. Okay? So here's how God sees Hezekiah right here. None of the kings that followed him matched his level. But none of the kings that were before him matched his level. What's that do? That makes Hezekiah top-notch in God's eyes. Hezekiah was a great, great king. It also says something interesting. It says that Hezekiah break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. Remember the, the brass serpent? The uh, Israelites were murmuring once again. God sent all these poisonous snakes. They started biting all the people. and Moses cried out to God. And God said, okay, Moses, I want you to take and make a snake out of brass. And then I want you to attach it to the top of a pole. And then I want you to take that pole out and put it in the field. And any time any of your people get bit by a poisonous snake, all they have to do is what? They have to look. Just look. All they have to do is look. Just look at the snake and they'll be healed. Just look at the snake. Look to the Lamb of God. Look to the Lamb of God. All they have to do is look and they'll be healed. It's a beautiful picture of looking by faith for the Lord Jesus for salvation in the Old Testament. It's gorgeous. But what happened long after Moses was off the scene and now, now generations have passed, they still have that brass serpent. Now, now they're, 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 they're burning incense to that brass serpent. Oh, oh, brass serpent. <laughs> they're, they're worshiping the serpent. They're, they're, they're making that into a God. Why? Because they've grown so accustomed to worshiping gods. Let's worship this one too. After all, there's something magical about this one. It healed people. No, it didn't. God did. It was simply a symbol. That's all it was. So what Moses or what did uh, Hezekiah do? Whew. <sighs> this was sacred, right? I mean, a snake was sacred. Well, no, it wasn't. It was nothing but a symbol. And when that symbol got in the way and stood in the way between their worship, God where it belonged, that symbol is going to be destroyed. So, Mo so Hezekiah broke it. A letter E. Rabshakeh continued to insult Hezekiah. Verse 8. Now therefore give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria. And I will give thee 2,000 horses if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. Uh, I, it's just intimidation. Just intimidation. He says, you tell your king just to give pledges, and I'll give you 2,000 horses. All you have to do is be able to prove that you can put riders on those horses. Well, of course he couldn't do that. Hezekiah, there weren't, there weren't 2,000 riders in the, all the land because they didn't know how to ride horses uh, as, a, as a group. In Psalm 123, verse 4, David said, Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. I think of the mockery that's going on right now and how it hurts to be mocked. Don't raise your hand because I know you won't, but which one of you enjoys being laughed at and mocked, made fun of. Most of you probably could tell me tales of when you were a child. I can. I remember the taunts very well. 
part of the reason that I'm in the ministry is because of those taunts. Because it hurt so badly. Now I want you to think for just a moment. The physical pain that Jesus endured was beyond comprehension. But I personally think the emotional and spiritual pain were far worse. Here they're mocking. They're mocking. Letter F. Rabshakeh belittled Judah's strength. Verse 9. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of at least of my master's servants and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Rabshakeh in essence said this. He said, how can you withstand even one of our forces even with the help of those Egyptians? We're so much stronger than you. What are you thinking? Letter G. Rabshakeh's boldest threat. Now I want you to follow this verse very carefully because this is, this is phenomenal. Verse 10. And, now, and, and am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? He says, the Lord. Notice, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What name of God does that suggest? See it? Jehovah. Right. This is the personal name for the God of the Israelites. This is Hezekiah's God he's calling out. He's calling him by his personal name, Jehovah. He says, and, and I, he's asked the question, am, am I now come up without the Lord, Jehovah, against this land to destroy it? He's not calling upon his own gods. He's calling upon their God, Jehovah God. He says, the Lord, Jehovah, said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. God told me, your God told me to come and destroy you. Well, number one, Rabshakeh bolstered, boasted God's will. This was his boldest move yet. He claimed that the mighty Assyrian army came at the bidding of Jehovah God. The God of Judah had commissioned Sennacherib to march against Jerusalem and destroy it. That was his boast. But number two, Rabshakeh inadvertently prophesied God's will. He was lying about his claim. Rabshakeh was lying, bold-faced lie. He was simply trying to intimidate them. However, what he did not know was that God was using Assyria as a tool of judgment against Judah. So they had become the unwitting pawn of Almighty God's master plan. In a way, Rabshakeh was almost right, with the exception that God was not going to allow them to destroy Jerusalem in this siege. I think of a New Testament passage in John chapter 19, and verse 10 and 11. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Rabshakeh, there's not one thing you can do against us if our God does not allow you. Rabshakeh, this entire army that you have is of no value whatsoever unless our God, Jehovah God, allows you the privilege. 
Letter H. Rabshakeh intensified his threats by delivering them in Hebrew. I mentioned this earlier. Verse number 11. Then said Eliakim and Shebna and Joah unto Rabshakeh. These are the three officers that are standing on the wall talking down to Rabshakeh and his army. Speak, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. And speak not to us in the Jews' language, or Hebrew, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. Why do you suppose? Uh, switch gears right now, and let, let's just talk in, in Syrian right now. Let's just speak Syrian. We know your language, so let's speak in Syrian. Well, they have no motivation whatsoever to change language because the very reason they're speaking in Hebrew is so that everybody there can be intimidated by what they're saying. So no, they're not going to change. They're going to continue speaking in Hebrew. Verse number, or letter I, letter I, Rabshakeh replied to their request with even more threats. It seems as we go along that with every verse, his threats intensify. Verse 12, but Rabshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Rabshakeh was not going to be moved by the request of their enemy. Instead, he described what they would soon face as starvation began to set in because of their siege against the city. He's intensifying his threats every time he speaks. Letter J, Rabshakeh lifted his voice for all to hear him honor his own king. In verse 13, then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language in Hebrew and said, Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Well, apparently, he had been sitting. Did they, did they bring him in on a little, little throne where four men carry? I don't know. Was he, was, he, was he perched on this little, this little uh, camping chair out there? I don't know. Was he on a rock? I don't know, but it says he stood. He's intensifying his threats. He now stands and he speaks louder in Hebrew for all to hear. Letter K. Rabshakeh warned to not trust their king, Hezekiah. Verse 14. Thus saith the king, Sennacherib, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Rabshakeh's message was not new, but it was intensified. He was now angrily warning them to not trust their own king. See what he's trying to do? He's inciting them. He's trying to get them worked up against their own leadership. He's trying to to cause them to, to cause mutiny here. Letter L. Rabshakeh's prophetical misstep. Prophetical misstep. Verse 15. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Again, Jehovah, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Rabshakeh had no idea that his words would become prophetical against himself and his own army. It was meant to be a paralyzing threat. Hezekiah's words would prove to come true, however. 
the Lord would truly deliver Jerusalem, and it would not be delivered into the hand of the Assyrian king. I read a passage in Psalms 22, verses 7 and 8. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And I think of the, the Assyrian army there, and every time Rabshakeh makes a mockery, they start laughing. They laugh. Sometimes they double over in laughter as they're laughing at the people of God. They're so much stronger. They've got this. It's their battle, and they're mocking, and they're laughing. At this stage, anyway. Letter M. Mutiny became Rabshakeh's next tactic. Mutiny. Verse 16. Hearken not to Hezekiah. For thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me. And eat ye every one his vine, and every one his fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his own cistern. Don't trust your king. Don't you trust Hezekiah. Here's a deal I've got for you. Now he's talking to all the people on the wall that can hear him. Not the three officers. He's talking to everybody in Hebrew. They can all understand him. Don't trust your king. Instead, come on out here. Come on out here. And we're going to make a deal. If you'll surrender to us, we'll make a deal where you can stay in your homes, you can eat your own food, you can have your own garden, you can drink from your own water supply. All you have to do is come out here and surrender to us. That's like a good deal. I think we can trust them, don't you? <laughs> Mutiny became Rabshakeh's next tactic. I found it interesting, however, the next word. Letter N, captivity in Assyria was the plan for Jerusalem. Verse number 17, here's the next word. Until. <laughs> you can have your own home, you can live there, you can stay there, have your own garden. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. <laughs> Ultimately, Assyria planned to take these Jews captive back to their homeland just like they had done with the northern tribes. The presentation to these Jews was done in a way to make it sound like life in Assyria would continue just as always in Judah. Oh, come, the land is going to be so great. We'll be so nice to you. You can have your own houses and have your own lands. Sounds an awful lot like the lies told in the Holocaust. The Jews, to me. Number three. Insulting Judah's God. Letter A, Israel's God was compared to heathen deities. Verse 18, Beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? In his attempt to strip these Jews of any strength left, he compared their God to the pagan gods of the nations around. These powerful gods were impotent against us. And your God will be just the same. Your Jehovah God is just like that God and that God and that God. And we destroyed them all. Letter B. Rabshakeh cited cities whose gods had failed them. Verse 19. 
Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Of course, Samaria, the northern kingdom, already taken captive. Hamath and Arpad had been conquered only recently before, around 720 by Sargon. Rabshakeh insinuated that their gods had not protected them, nor had it protected Sepharvaim, which lay north of Babylon on the Euphrates. As far as they were concerned, the God of the Jews will be just as powerless. Letter C. Judah's God would be no different than all the rest. Verse 20. Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? After the overwhelming defeat of their enemies, in Rabshakeh's mind, Judah's God could be no different. It would only be a matter of time before Jerusalem fell to the great power like all the rest. Now, I thought about this a little bit. Now, I told you that Hezekiah, great, great king. Well, let's just assume for a moment that he wasn't. Let's assume for a moment that he was a little backslidden at the time, fearful and backslidden. But after these threats, the threats of saying that his God was just like all the heathen gods. Don't you think that would ring his bell? Don't you think that surely that would wake him up if he were backslidden to be reminded of all the great and powerful things that Jehovah God had done for the Jews in the years gone by? I don't know the answer to that, but he's playing with fire, we're going to find out, because Judah's God is different than all the rest. Number four, Hezekiah's report. Letter A, Hezekiah's representatives obeyed his request. And I found this really interesting. <clears throat> Hezekiah's representatives obeyed his request. Remember what Rabshakeh is trying to get them to do. Rabshakeh is trying to get them to all mutiny, all forsake King Hezekiah, all disbelieve him, not put faith in him, don't trust him, he's leading you astray. But what they do, verse 21, speaking of the officers in particular, but they held their peace and answered him not a word. Why? For the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. <laughs> so all this time, Rabshakeh has been flapping his lips. Long speeches. The three officers, just listening, not saying a word. Don't you suppose they would have loved to just come unglued against Rabshakeh? And tell them what they really thought, but they didn't. Not a word. Not one word. Why? Because Hezekiah says, do not open your mouth. And they dutifully obeyed. Lastly, letter B. Isaiah received a full report. In verse 22. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, that was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Their clothes are rent. Why would their clothes be rent? It caused the emotional distress. Here's this massive army out here, and all these threats. They come, and they're so, so distraught, they rent their clothes to stand before the king, and they give him a report of everything. They, relay, they relayed all of Rabshakeh's threats to Hezekiah. They're in a mess. Judah's in a mess. 
They've got this massive army out there. The, the army has already taken all of Judah except for this Jerusalem that they're in. They've already taken all the ten tribes, the northern tribes, they've already taken them captive. Rabshakeh, the general, is constantly trying to get their own people to mutiny. They're in a horrible situation. And that's tonight's lesson. Spoiler, there's a good ending here. That'll come up later. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your love, your goodness, and your blessing. And I thank you for the fact of being a great God and not like all the other gods. Thank you, Lord, that our God is the, the creator of the universe that spoke the worlds into existence in six days. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy that you demonstrated when you went to the cross, paying the price that we deserve to pay. Thank you, Lord, for your love that's demonstrated on a daily basis for you ever live to make intercession for us. And thank you for preparing a place for us. Lord, we are so undeserving but so grateful. Thank you for this Bible study. With us, I pray. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.